Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to world language educators across the nation seeking information about issues relevant to teaching and learning of world languages. Each month, we'll be talking to educators, researchers, or advocates for world language learning. Language Talk is a partnership between the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky, designed to showcase the importance of global citizenship. Welcome to Language Talk KWLA. This is your host, Laura Rocha Youngworth, and today's topic is comprehensible input. Joining me is our producer, Jean Marie Rouillet Willoughby. Hello, Jean Marie. Hi, Laura. Um, our World Language Conference is quickly approaching, and um, I thought today's topic, let's go big. Let's go with a big concept to kind of get everybody's brain churning and, you know, really motivated to go hear some wonderful sessions um, at our September conference. So I do want to ask the listeners to think about a question for a minute. Is teaching an art or is it science? Jean-Marie, what do you think? <laughs> and putting you on the spot here. Yeah, uh, you are putting me on the spot. Sorry. Well, I think that it is both. Um, in the sense that you have to be aware of cognitive science, you have to be aware of how second, for our purposes at least, mm -hmm. this isn't true for math teachers, but how second languages are acquired, um, how to ensure that your students are making progress um, is indeed partially science, but it's also an art in that you have to read your group and you can read as many articles as you want from the best experts in the field and apply all of the theories assiduously, but if the students are not responding, right. you better uh, figure out a way to make them respond and motivate them and get them to move forward in a productive way. Right. Well, great answer. Um, I agree with you. It is both. And, you know, sometimes you get teachers that might focus more on the science aspect and some that focus more on the art, but your goal is, I think, to balance the two. And, you know, the art to me is that je ne sais quoi. You can't define it. It's that teacher who flows with the class. The class flows with the teacher. The kids walk out like, yeah, that was a good class. That's an art. That's a teacher who knows how to pull it all together in a way that's effective and appropriate for that age group. Mm -hmm. And it is a science, though. And with in our public schools, data is everything now. So any decision you're making, you should be informing your decision through whatever data you have, whether it's formative, summative, interim, whatever you want to call your data. It's, there is a definite science plus the theories like you mentioned. Um, one thing about the math, I didn't know this. I was at a growth mindset session. And it was really cool. Um, if a young child is from an early age thinking they can't learn math, guess what? They don't learn math. They don't learn math. You know why? I was that child, I so was I knew too. that. I was too. And so, you know, I'm seeing when they said that and they used math as an example, it was exciting because in world languages, we do have a lot of theories that support what we do and how we do it. And it was cool to see something get applied to a core content. Um, you know, they might have a thousand theories and we just don't know them, but I think we have more. So um, the second question I really want the listener to think about is what is your approach to language instruction? How do you go about it? If you had to describe to someone what your beliefs are, what would it be? And I won't put you on the spot for that one, Jean Marie, but Thanks. chime in. I know for me, it was probably around year 19, 18, somewhere in there, 17, 
in my teaching career, I found what my approach was. It, I don't know how, but I became more reflective and I was able to define it more. And it probably was when I was K-tipping. I had people that I had to mentor. And when you're mentoring somebody and they ask you questions, you really reflect and think about your beliefs. And that's probably when that happened. And so I know for me, my approach, if somebody asked me, I would say I'm proficiency-based. But that's a loaded answer. It can mean so many different things. Mm -hmm. And proficiency-based instruction has been around, what, since the 80s or so? And I know in Kentucky, it's really the base of language instruction and our standards and so on. So, you know, last night I was kind of thinking, how would I tell somebody what proficiency-based is? So these are my thoughts. And again, chime in if I leave something out or you want to expand. But for me, the most important thing being a proficiency-based instructor is it's real world. You don't learn about the language unless it's being able to be applied to the real world, somehow, some way. So that drives a lot of Kentucky's can-do. So our standards are written as can-do statements. It's what the kids can do in the real world. Um, I believe being proficiency-based, you approach things thematically. When you do thematic instruction, it really helps the student acquire the language they're hearing that content focus over and over but in different ways so thematic is important for proficiency based huge is culture culture is not the fifth c it's almost as equal Mm -hmm. or if not equal to the communication c and culture is the thread that binds what you teach So I would always, when I do professional learning, I like to put a slide up that has visuals of my thinking on what language teaching is, and I go through each one, kind of like I'm doing right now. And I always put a a spool with thread on it. So any unit I teach, it starts with culture, and it's throughout the entire unit is culture, and that's all the content and what the students are going to learn to be able to do. So it's very important, and with that, real-world, authentic resources um, are very helpful to bring in so the kids not only get explained to you about the culture, but they can make their own inferences. So if you have, you know, my favorite example to give, I probably need to come up with a new one at this point, is the ad in, um, what, the Saturday newspaper with groceries. If you give a group of four kids in your language classroom um, the supermercada, sorry for my Spanish, but the supermarché, a supermarket ad, where they can flip through it and see the fruits and vegetables and the meats, they're going to make cultural observations you don't need to tell them about. And, and it's so powerful. So using those authentic resources, I think, is, is just imperative. And then two other things, but they both kind of go together, is input and output need to happen. The kids need to hear it. They need to read it to learn, but they also have to output it. They have to speak it and write it to learn. Without that output, the input's pretty um, less effective, and there's been a lot of studies on that. So thus, the teacher needs to stay in the target language. You are one of the major inputs for the kids. So if you're teaching and you're doing a lot of talking in English, you just wasted your time. You wasted valuable minutes in that class where the kids could have been getting more input. So that's kind of how I would define 
proficiency-based. I mean, is that in line with what you're thinking? Or? Yeah, it's in line with how uh, we teach most of our languages, um, even Latin, <laughs> at UK. Um, because those uh, connections between the culture and language are so seminal um, that culture can't be an add-on. You know, in the mm-hmm. in the classic textbook, it's the little piece at the end of the chapter. Right, right. <laughs> but in fact, it's really the umbrella that contains the language, in my view. Even though I loved teaching those last yes. pages of every unit, they were so fun in the 90s to do that. Um, so I do have um, a former colleague Skyping in with us. Um, I'm going to call her my bestie from the Midwestie, uh, Jillian Likens. Jillian, are you there? I am. Hi, Laura. Hi, Jean Marie. Hi, Jillian. Thank you for joining us. Um, for those listening, Jillian was German teacher at Beaumont Middle School when I was French teacher there, and we both left at the same time because we just couldn't live without each other. So um, I went on to central office, and Jillian said, "I'm going to Colorado." And uh, <laughs> but um, Jillian, I've asked you to call in today because you and I have a lot of phone discussions, which I'm very thankful for. And I think we push each other to grow in our thinking quite a bit. And your time in Colorado, a lot of our, our phone calls have talked about observations you're making, things you're noticing about, wow, Midwest. And would you call Colorado Midwest? I think it's further west than that. But oh, okay. You'll be my bestie in the Westie then. Okay, um, so out in Colorado, you're making a lot of um, noticing discussions with me not negative, you know, very good discussions about, wow, things are approached a little bit differently in different parts of the United States regarding the languages. And it's, I just wanted you to call in because it's neat that you've got the Kentucky perspective and now you are going on your second year in Colorado. And, you know, we just wanted to hear about that. But can you tell us where you are and what you're teaching? Yes, I am currently teaching high school German in Colorado Springs. So I started with eight years of teaching middle school in Kentucky. Um, When I moved out here, I took a high school position. So I'm teaching levels one through AP at Pine Creek High School. Okay. And in Kentucky, while you were at UK, were you a TA or? Yes. When I was a master's student, I was a TA and I did beginning through intermediate German. Okay. So you've got the 16 through 6. Well, technically down lower, when I lived in Germany, I taught at a preschool um, teaching English to ages one and a half through six-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So you that's impressive. Okay. You've got me there. Um, so with your colleagues in Colorado, I know you. You're not going to stay hidden in a room. Um, what opportunities have you had to really interact? And I just don't mean your colleagues at your school. I mean across the state or district. Um, have you taken advantage of anything in your first year? Oh, yes. Um, Colorado has actually been a very welcoming atmosphere, and I've been able to just kind of dive right into the fray. Um, We have a very active state association, the Colorado Conference of Foreign Language Teachers, and I attended their state conference in February. And then also been involved in a lot of the Colorado-Wyoming chapter of AATG events with an immersion weekend with them and other events throughout the year. So I've gotten to meet teachers in my district, in my state, and in my region since I've been out here. And at the district level, didn't you mention you did something, um, you all were looking at, um, what were you looking at, was it? Yes, it was a um, district level committee with teachers from elementary through high school, and we were looking at our world language standards and how they were being implemented in classrooms throughout the district. Okay, I thought there was something district level you did. So first off, kudos, because it's hard when you change to um, get involved. You were very involved with KWA and in Kentucky, so I'm excited to see that crossover into Colorado. Um, so. 
from your just observations or things you've witnessed, uh, what has stood out to you regarding Colorado's address, the way they look as a state at world languages? And of course, I, I need to emphasize to the reader, I mean, listeners, this is just Jillian's opinion, but what have you noticed? Um, I have noticed, a, first off, a very strong passion for teaching world languages here in Colorado. Um, I've been very impressed with the teachers I've seen and what they've been doing in their classrooms. Um, I think what first struck me is there's a little bit more freedom here in Colorado than we had in Kentucky. Um, without the state level initiatives like the program review in Kentucky, which kind of guides schools to perform their best on the aspects that the, cha- the state itself has chosen as critical. Uh-huh. Um, Without that, I can really approach things in my classroom and with my instruction as I please. Interesting. Huh. That kind of is food for thought. Not that we don't love our direction from the state level, but it's it's interesting. Um, now, as per approaches or methods or instructional strategies teachers are using, what similarities are you noticing between Colorado, so out west, versus kind of the southeast United States or Kentucky? First off, um, our standards are kind of written in the same manner. Um, So along the veins with Kentucky and the national standards, the focus is on the three modes of communication, and they're broken down into proficiency levels. Um, We have a lot more of the 21st century skills thrown into that. But as a whole, the teachers kind of take a different approach to building those proficiency with their students. First off, in Kentucky and in Fayette County in particular, I had the experience with the high focus on proficiency-based instruction like you had talked about. Uh, We had worked so hard to develop our understanding of cultural competence and how we can use this to advance our students with what they could do with the language in the real world. And in Colorado, I noticed kind of a different focus, and they are really strong here on comprehensible input. Really? Um, So they're using strategies that support that approach then. Mm-hmm. And I will say I'm somewhat familiar with that approach. I've had some training on it and I've worked with it a little bit in my classroom in Kentucky. Right. Um, but that's all I have is just kind of a fleeting knowledge of it. So I'm interested to learn more. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a good description. And that kind of a little bit answered unless you have more to say. Um, I was going to ask you, what have you noticed that's very different? So is there mm-hmm. anything else that stood out? Well, I would say, um, as I said, the biggest difference is the focus on cultural authenticity. Okay. So we work so hard on intentionally targeting interculturality in our class, mm-hmm. um, making sure everything was real world, making sure everything was culturally authentic. And then as departments, we worked on developing our units around the cultural aspects in the real world and then really focusing on what do we want our students to be able to achieve in the target culture by the end of the unit, and then how can we build their language skills necessary to accomplish those goals. And with our comprehensible input, what I've noticed students um, accomplishing in the class is just lots and lots of language, but not necessarily focused on real world tasks. Interesting, which I mean, we're not saying that's a bad thing at all. I mean, when you say lots and lots of language, that's a good thing. Impressive, yes. Wow, okay, well, Jillian, I appreciate you calling in and kind of giving us this West versus East thoughts on what you're seeing and and I hope you'll be willing to call in again and give us more updates. Definitely. I'm always making observations, so I have a lot to share. (laughs) Thank you, Jillian. Have a good day. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, Jillian. Bye. Joining us next is an educator I had the pleasure of meeting last year at the Actful Conference. 
he is part of what I like to call the 2017 Actful Teacher of the Year Finalist Club. So welcome, <laughs> Grant Boulanger. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hi, hey, Grant. Grant. Everything good Hi. with you? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Where are you calling us from? Um, I'm calling you from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I live and work up here in St. Paul. And Laura, it's good to hear your voice again after not seeing you since uh, since being on the stage with you at Actel in Boston. Right. Are you going in Nashville? Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to actually. Oh. I know. I've I've uh, I've had to curtail a little bit the the extras that I put in in the last year and a half preparing for for Boston was really intense, and uh, I'm going to lay low this time. That's an understatement. I don't think people realize how much the finalists do and the process. I know my process started in 2015, and like you said, it was about a year and a half of getting to that finalist point, and it's it's intense, really intense. Very much so. It was, but however, the intensity notwithstanding, um, I think you would agree that it was a fantastic uh, process to go through and experience, yes. um, and I would I would continue to highly recommend that experience for any educator who's looking to get better at what they do. Right, I 100% agree. It, it was a memory, and uh, my cell phone burned up the other day. I had to get a new cell phone, and I lost all my pictures. Oh no! Me not loving technology. Of course, they were not backed up anywhere. And I'm just so sad I don't have those pictures to capture it. So I'm going to have to beg everybody who's got something to send me one. But um, so, Grant, can you share a little bit about yourself? What's your background? Sure. So um, this will be year 18 for me in the public schools here in Minnesota. I grew up in um, uh, amid corn and soybeans in southern Illinois and moved up to Minnesota to go to my undergraduate school. Um, my graduate degrees at the University of Minnesota in Second Languages and Cultures Education. I've been teaching uh, for near 20 years in um, experiential immersion, uh, regular academic immersion programs, traditional second language uh, programs. And for the last eight uh, to 10 years, I've been um, teaching level one uh, novices mm -hmm. uh, at the middle school level. And I've really found my, my sweet spot. Normally, a person who has a real high um, degree of proficiency and knowledge about the world is tapped to teach in secondary immersion programs here in Minnesota. Uh -huh. But um, but I've really found that my joy is getting a brand new crop of 165 kids who have all kinds of preconceptions about what language learning is and should be like and convincing them over the course of a school year that they really are natural born language learners and um, uh, and that's and that's where I'm at today uh, that I had no clue we had that in common I taught um, 18 years at the high school level and switched counties and um, took a position at the middle school level and it, I love what you said, sweet spot. I absolutely enjoyed teaching level one novice, loved it at the middle school yeah. level. They, they are so excited and they want to learn. They just think it's the coolest thing in the world to learn a language at the middle school where high school, they get a little too cool for themselves. <laughs> yeah, they can. <laughs> yeah, and I love teaching AP, level four, level three, having that high level with the language with the kids. But level one at middle school can be the most um, invigorating thing uh, to teach. And I just, it's funny you said that. So, Which language, Grant? 
I teach Spanish. I speak um, I speak a little bit of German. Um, when I was uh, twenty, between twenty and twenty one and twenty three, I was working for the Concordia Language Villages up in northern Minnesota. Oh yeah. And when I said experiential language immersion, that was what I was referring to mostly. Um, and at twenty three, I didn't have much to do. I had applied to and been accepted at the university, but. I don't think I was really ready, and I called a friend of mine living in Spain, which is where I had studied in college, and I said, what are you doing this year? And he said, well, I'm going to go to Germany. Uh, I said, do you mind if I tag along? Yes. And he said, <laughs> he said, no, come on. So we, uh, we met in Munich underneath the clock in the Bahnhof on September 23rd, I think it was. Wow. And um, for the next uh, nine to ten months, I studied German with some other European immigrants, and I was a European immigrant uh, at the time, um, officially, although not really. Uh, <laughs> that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> but uh, And then in the evenings, I worked at uh, a restaurant, and I when I left, that. I had a few thousand dollars in my bank account, and when I came home, I had a few thousand dollars in my bank account and another language. So, um, so I speak German and Spanish, but I've been teaching Spanish. Okay. Wow, that's impressive. Um, so right before your call-in, we were speaking with a former colleague of mine, Jillian Likens, who is teaching German in Colorado mm -hmm. Springs. And um, she was in Kentucky for many years, and she's going on her second year in um, Colorado. And we're pretty close, so we talk, if not daily, you know, definitely weekly. And we always talk about education. And um, yeah. her... Um, experience out in Colorado has been so different. You know, everything, everything education is just different state to state. And sure. there's, of course, huge similarities to what's happening in Kentucky, but also differences. And one of the things she's mentioned was comprehensible input and mm -hmm. more of a focus on that as the lens, however you want to call it, that one would approach instructional practices. And your name, I mean, when you look up comprehensible input, it says slash Grant Boulanger. And <laughs> I was like, I know Grant. <laughs> so, you know, we really wanted to hear from you. You live and breathe it. I know you do a lot of speaking, um, trainings and so on, supporting it. And I thought, who better to call than Grant? So thank you for, for taking the time to talk to us. But how would you describe to someone who really doesn't know what CI is? What is it? Well, that's a fabulous question, right? And it's a and it's a key question to be able to understand um, language acquisition in general um, anywhere. Uh, when I talk to people who don't know what um, comprehensible input is or, or what it means, a lot of times what I say to them is I say, um, CI is delivering understandable messages to the eyes and the ears of the students in the room. So one thing that we know about language acquisition is that in order for us to be able to speak the language, we have to have understood the language. And so our, with the focus being on listening to and, and, and reading understandable messages, the brain is able to develop the patterns that it needs to almost subconsciously. That's a very clear. Very clear. And I'm sitting here writing it down, what you said. Um, so, of course, there's going to be some support, theoretical support. Where does this get its roots, um, the way you're describing it? Sure. I'll, I'd, I'd love to... Um I'll, I'll get to that. I, w I want to make a little bit of a, if I can, a little, a couple of uh, metaphors. Okay. Um, uh, 
Uh, one is of a clock. When my son was um, seven or eight years old, and he began to show interest in telling time, I did not sit down with him and dissect a clock and say, look at this cog, and this is, this is called a cog, and this is called a, a spinner, a <laughs> and, you know, and, and here are the different parts inside the clock that are making the clock function. Right. Um, instead, I said, here's the long hand, this is for the minutes, here's the short hand, this is for the hours, um, and gave him the tools that he needed immediately to be able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Similarly, if when my daughter began to, now I don't want to be, um, this is a true story, so I'm not suggesting that girls should be baking and boys should be doing something else, but my daughter began to demonstrate interest in, in baking. And so um, if I were to say, you know, she wants to make some muffins, if I were to say, okay, you're going to need um Let's make a list of all the things that we need. So we need a uh, bowl, we need a whisk, we need the, all of the list of ingredients, we need the tools. And then I say to her, so how do you make muffins? She wouldn't be able to tell me right. uh, how to make muffins, right? And that's, the, um, uh, that's sort of um, a, a metaphor for the sort of traditional approach of like, okay, here are the grammatical rules, mm-hmm. here are the list of vocabularies. Now put those together and make language. It doesn't work that way in our brain. And to be teaching that way is, uh, I've come to conclude that it's counterproductive. I and, agree. I agree. Yeah. So, so this is what, you know, what led me to um, teaching with CI really was a, a, a focus on the kids that I was losing in my classroom. I was losing by the end of the school year 75% of my kids. And I began to wonder, well, what does it look like at the upper levels? And we began to look at what does it look like at the upper levels and why, uh, what, what's the enrollment pattern? And in my district, we did a little bit of research and we discovered that for every 40 students of color or African-American students in particular that were beginning in level one, there were one or two left in level four. Mm. And, and this was repeating over and over again. Right. There was a higher um, attrition level for males than there were for females. There was over-representation of uh, high-achieving females at the upper levels. And I just asked myself, you know, is, is this, hold on now, if this is, you know, some people would like to say, well, you know, they're competing interests, and that's true. And sometimes kids are more interested than other times, and that's true. But I also heard things like, these kids can't learn language. Mm-hmm. Or these kids aren't good language students. And I began to ask myself, well, what is it about a student, what is it about an African-American student that makes him or her not be able to learn language? I mean, the pattern kept repeating itself, right? Right. So, so that, you know, that really turned into a question of equity for me because competitive colleges require three to four years of language study these days. And if we're getting rid of most of our students of color by level two, they're not going to have access to those exactly. schools. Yep. Right? And so I began um, about 10 years ago to, to seek out a different, a different way of doing things. And, and this is what I found, and the results for me have been um, dramatic, dramatically different. So if, can you, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't want to put you on spot on this. Um, are there any theoretical underpinnings that support, like what language um, theories would would you kind of be your go-tos that support using CI? Well, first of all, I have to say that everybody uses CI. 
CI is not um, a method. CI is a concept. Okay. The, con- the concept was articulated um, in the late 70s and early 80s by Dr. Stephen Krashen initially. It wasn't necessarily his idea, but he synthesized the ideas that were out there and put a label on it and talked about it. Um, a lot of what we uh, do as CI teachers is influenced by Sandra Savignon, who in the middle of the 70s was talking about communicative competence. Uh, James Asher, who in the 1960s developed TPR, Total Physical Response. Okay. Uh, Bill Van Patten's research in the 80s and 90s demonstrating that language is more complex and more abstract, that we can't really learn, the, the, that the rules that are in our textbook don't end up in our head. And so there has to be a different way to get language into our heads, and that way is through understandable messages. Um, Benico Mason is a Japanese uh, professor and researcher doing a lot of research on um, story listening and she's demonstrated that uh, you don't need to learn the grammar rules and you don't need to um, do things in a thematic way necessarily to, re- to achieve the same results that, that other people do and you can do it in a way that's more interesting and more fun and more relaxing. Okay, uh, that sounds... So those are a few of them. Um, one of the things, I mean, you're listing all of these, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, there, there are people that I, I believe stuff in. I mean, I think a couple of them sure. were, you know, ones that I often follow, but it's very sound. So it's just basic theoretical world language acquisition is, is what it's founded on, which is good. Um, now, this is the big question. Mm-hmm. If someone says, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but around here somebody will say, are you CI or not? So I don't. Not. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't know if that's um, a phrase you would hear um, in Missouri if that's how it's said there. But if somebody claimed to be a CI teacher, what would their instructional practices look like? You walk by the room. What are some things you would expect to see happening? The learning and and does that make sense to you? Can you paint us a picture of what a CI classroom looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, I would say, uh, reiterate again, that um, I I don't really believe that you can either be CI or not be CI because uh, any language teacher is going to be using the target language in the class to some degree or other, right? And when they do, they are inevitably using some language that some students are going to be able to understand. So when that occurs, that is CI, right? The difference between um, uh, somebody who might consider themselves to be a CI teacher and somebody who may not is that a CI teacher um, acknowledges and embraces and adheres to Dr. Krashen's comprehension hypothesis that says that language acquisition occurs when we understand messages. So all of their um, instructional choices are filtered through that lens, right? They understand that the ability to speak in the language is the result of language acquisition, not the cause of language acquisition. So one thing that you would not see in a CI classroom is a lot of turn and talk at the novice level. Interesting. And here's the reason for that. What can novices do according to our performance descriptors that ACPO has, has produced? They can make lists, they can use short memorized phrases, right? Mm-hmm. When, two, when two individuals turn and try to have a real communicative event between the two of them using lists of words, 
that's not a very interesting communicative event, <laughs> right? So, sure so, it is. Come on. Really? You know, I don't think so. Like, I memorize what do you like to do? And yeah. somebody says baseball, basketball, sing, piano, eat, sleep, right? right? And the other person says uh, paint, jump, uh, swim, uh, you know. And then it's done. And because they don't, and, and the reason that they can't produce more than that is because they don't have what Bill Van Patten refers to as the mental representation in their head to be able to produce more, right? So in those stages in particular, from novice to intermediate, a CI teacher um, takes on the role of the communicative partner of each student in the classroom and delivers input that the students need to hear and interpret and respond to in order to drive uh, instruction further. So um, one of the things that a lot of CI teachers like to do is to co-create stories with their classes. Okay. And when we co-create a story, um, somebody who doesn't understand language acquisition would stand at the doorway and say, wow, the teacher's talking a lot. This might be a teacher-centered class. But somebody who takes the time to listen and observe would see that the teacher is delivering short bits of input that are understandable to the students. The students are interpreting them and providing more input back to the teacher with their responses. The teacher is allowing them to provide answers to questions and to fill in blanks in the story that allow the students to feel as if they are building the story themselves while the teacher is getting lots of um, uh, repetitions of comprehensive uh, comprehensible structures that mm -hmm. the teacher wants the students to acquire right so the final product then is a co-created narrative that students have a high degree of ownership of because they've created it okay. uh, together with the teacher right that's one example um, it's not limited to co-creating stories, right? Um, right? That comes from uh, TPRS, to teaching proficiency through reading and storytelling. That's a technique that we use there. And that's just one method under the larger umbrella that is CI teaching. Um, but to answer your question in short, what do you see when you walk into a CI classroom? You see the teacher understanding that uh, language is acquired through listening and reading. And so that's what's happening. The students are um, squarely in the position of interpreting language and responding to language in a way that lets the teacher know whether they're understanding or not understanding. And you see the teacher responding to that to cater the next bit of input to the students at their level. So listening to you, this has really made me think, and Jean Marie's over here really pondering, I can tell. Um, it's interesting because one of the things Jillian and I were talking about in Kentucky, for example, we had something called the program reviews, and I'm sure you've not heard of them, but they were um, a set of descriptors of the ideal world language program. Sure. The schools rated themselves, which led to some concern, but you rated yourself, and your school would get a score on where you rate for your world language programs, and that started to go into our accountability system. So it was a win-win there. You know, world languages were important to schools. Every school had to have a program. But it's interesting because when I think about our program review, it had very specific expectations of what's happening in class. And you said something, and I'm glad you said it. 
uh, where someone walking by a CI class might assume it's teacher-centered. And I think that was very poignant you, you mentioned that. So in our program review, if I was using CI, ooh, we might get no knocked down because the expectations were for more of an approach where Swain, for example, you know, talks about the importance of output in that mm -hmm. learning process. And it really made me realize our program review leaned towards that theoretical understanding. Um, but the way you describe it makes very perfect sense to me. I mean, it's quite interesting. Well, I think that even Swain recognizes the importance of conference playing, but first sure, of all. Sure, and, sure, definitely. And, and second of all, I, I don't want you to get the impression that there's no output. Um, there is. Uh -huh. uh, when a student, well, and, and, and it also def depends a little bit perhaps on how we define output, right? But um, in any given segment of my classes, I'm, I'm not going to make more than one or two statements before I turn to the rest of the class and get some response from them, okay. right? And we and, and with a lot of one of the skills that we use in CI is a skill that's used in other uh, in good language teaching, um, where you can scaffold the students' right, answers, right. allowing them to answer yes or no and either or, and then open-ended questions and that right, sort of thing. Right. That really allows for students to differentiate what they say back to the teacher. Um, so there is plenty of uh, talk, and there's there may be a quick turn and talk while I transition to another activity or something like that. But it's just not the focus. I don't believe. So interesting. I don't believe, and my experience does not um, uh, bear out that having students talk more will result in more language getting into their heads. Mm -hmm. In fact, the opposite is true. The less I obligate my students to talk, the more they want to talk. Um, and that, to me, has been something that I did not expect to find. Right. But I, but I have found over the years to the point where I no longer, you know, I ask for choral responses. But I have shy students, and I have students who are self-conscious, and they'll give a choral answer. But if I if I put them on the spot, they'll clam up quickly. And when I relaxed the putting them on the spot thing, and here's another difference between a typical academic. Um, uh, teacher review sort of piece um, that doesn't work in a language classroom, putting them on the spot. You know, in a social studies classroom, you can uh, pick your 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 um, your uh, uh, popsicle sticks out of the out of the cup with the names on them and call them and call on a kid cold call and, and they should be able to answer your question. In a in a language learning setting, well, that raises the affective filter through the roof, right? And so that's. That's it ends up being counterproductive to to acquisition. And what I found is that over the course of the year, if I the less I make them talk, the more they want to. I had a, a student, a young Somali student who was in my class. Her name was Yasmin, and she was shy and she didn't want to um, put herself out there. But I could tell every day by looking at her eyes and by listening to her choral responses that she was listening, she was um, understanding, she was interpreting, she was um, able to read everything that we read together as a class. And by March, she, we had a, um, I tell this story sometimes when I present, we had a, a visitor come and I do these personal interviews of students that I learned from my friend Bryce Hedstrom in Colorado. And, but I do a gradual release of responsibility with that. So over the course of the year, I begin doing the interview questions uh -huh. 
uh, and then students begin uh, taking over that role. And I raised my hand. I said, I didn't raise my hand. I said, who would like to ask our visitors some questions? And what was really fascinating, Laura, was that this um, this young woman, this young Somali woman, stood up and came up to the front. She sat down with the um, visitor. The visitor was a Portuguese speaker, a native of Brazil, who had married an Italian speaker and had a son um, about 10 or 11 years old. And my Somali student asked her um, in beautiful Spanish with a beautiful accent and correct usage, what languages does your son speak? And she said, well, my son speaks Italian and, and, and Portuguese and English. And she said, well, and her follow-up question, what language does he like to speak the most? And asked two or three follow-up questions. That's great. Well, what was interesting about this was that we had, nobody in the class had ever heard her voluntarily speak, yet she carried on a five-minute conversation with this visitor uh, in perfect Spanish about a topic that was of, of, of uh, interest to her as a young Somali immigrant whose parents speak Somali and Swahili at home, but who needs to learn English in the school system, right? right. A, very, a very fascinating experience, and one of those that helps me to remember to trust the process, that the language acquisition device in the brain is, is working as long as we're understanding these messages. Right. That's... Um Grant, you're painting such a, a good picture to really understand this because, like I said, I, I had an idea of what CI was, but, you know, you really are giving me a deeper perspective of it. And it's what I'm finding most fascinating is I would cite many of the same, you know, I love Crashing. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I love that book. And um, I really believe he had some profound thoughts that have influenced many other researchers since him and mm -hmm. de debates and discussions and so on and it's so interesting how you can take his theories and just with a slight twist comes a different approach and last night when I was kind of preparing for this you're coming on the podcast I was thinking about what in the 50s was it Jim Marie mm -hmm. they would do grammar translation people learned language with it I'm not promoting that but people learned to communicate with grammar, you know, and today we're like, oh, don't do that. There were many people, though, audiolingual, people learn. So it's like people can learn a language. It's almost sometimes, and it goes back to that question um, I asked the listeners to really ponder on at the beginning. Teaching is an art, and it's a science. So just from hearing your explanation, Grant, I know you've taken this science and you've made it an art. It's absolutely obvious, and well, it's wonderful to hear your explanation of it. Well, thank you, Laura. I think that um, that's a to me when something uh, goes. Art is the next step, right? You, you can't. I don't believe that you can really teach a language from a science. Um, uh, perspective, a prescriptive, turn to page seven, let's do these exercises, turn to page eight, let's do, I just don't think I, that'll work. I, you know? I'm going to argue with you, and I can't believe I'm even going to argue with you. I agree a thousand percent, a hundred percent with you, because it had been done. It's just what kid wants to learn that way, what to, it, why, and your topic of engagement, 
your kids are not going to be engaged. Turn to page 54. We're going to do activity A. We're going to do activity B. I think kids can learn a language. It's just it makes me cringe to say that, and, and I really am cringing right now. But I agree. It shouldn't be taught that way. It's not for the best and mm-hmm. long-term interest in the language, which is our mm-hmm. goal for our students, to be lifelong learners and lovers of you know, learning about others and their languages. Um, so not to contradict you there, but I hate to admit it, you can learn it that way. <laughs> well, I, I will agree with you, Laura. I, I, think that it is, um, I think that it is possible, but I'm glad to hear you talk about engagement. I'm glad to hear you talk about getting uh, lifelong learning. You know, one of the things that we have to strive to do is to create the next generation of Americans uh, who are language and culture learning advocates. We have, yeah, we have a history in this country of teaching language in a way that simply doesn't work except for a few, right? There are few kids who could learn in grammar training. I have a lot of kids who, not a lot, I have some kids who just eat up the grammar and we have to recognize Yeah, that, there are kids that love it, believe it sure, or not. Sure, of course there are. And, and, and But we have to realize that um, and many of the language teachers that are out there today are just like those kids. I was one of them. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So was I. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And but we, here's the thing that we have to realize: we are weird. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we are. We don't represent the norm. We don't represent the norm. And so um, we have to. We simply cannot continue to teach in ways that attract people like us right. into the profession. <laughs> Because we eliminate ninety five percent of the rest of the population, I, I, and beautiful wording, beautiful. And the 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 and I don't know how we're doing on time. I'm sorry if Good. I'm if I'm long winded, but no. um, but we have to take a look at um, not just achievement, but we have to take a look at enrollment because we have a, a general population right now, millions of people in the United States who would all say the same thing. And it all starts with, I took three years of X in high school and I can't, right? Yeah. Exactly. On that point, I mean, you know, you're at the college level. Um, What's being done at the college level to really think about enrollment? And you want to speak to that? Well, one of the things we've been thinking of, well, we have done is um, capitalize on motivations for why you take a language. I would like everyone to take Russian because I think it's the world's most perfect language. But I realize (laughs) that not everyone has the motivation to take Russian. Um, So what I'm saying to every student in summer orientation when I talk to the freshmen is, I am agnostic about what language you take. But here are the benefits, and it's a tool. Now, you can be that language person who adores every single nuance the grammatical endings, the genders, the funny vocabulary, the intricacies of sound. Great. I want more of those people. But we're combining them with degrees that prepare them in ways that language becomes something that's a pathway to an understanding of other cultures and professions. So we have a degree in international economics and language. We have a new dual degrees Uh, that we're promoting to all the people in STEM that has an internship abroad as part of it so that they understand that doing medicine and Spanish might be useful for some, doing French and psychology might be useful for someone else, but there's a reason to do them. Mm -hmm. And we're also 
absolutely committed to the idea of being aware of motivations. Um, you you hit the nail on the head, uh, Grant, when you were talking about you know the affective filter. I think except for math. <laughs> We, we are the one field that has the highest level of resistance and fear built into yeah. it. And that affective filter has to be um, broken down and they have to find the motivation within themselves. But we also are the facilitators of that. And if we're not thinking about that question, we're dooming ourselves. Right. Well, Grant, I do want to get into one last question with you. Um, and this is a hot topic, so, you know, not to stir a pot here, but let's stir it. Um, I know <laughs> that um, I've made a tweet before and, and people have commented and I'm like, what is happening? I mean, I really was confused while these people were, were commenting on my tweet. And it was something about authentic resources. And, mm. you know, for us in Kentucky, when we really focus on proficiency-based instruction, you're like um, holy grail is when you find some authentic resource and you almost brag about it. You take pictures, you make extra copies of it in case there's a fire in the school. You've got to have this authentic resource. You cannot teach beep without this. And so authentic resources along with that culture um, integration play a central role. And you kind of made some um, references to that. So, you know, on through your eyes, Talk about that. What do you think about authentic resources and the role they play in what you do? I think um, I think that's a little bit of a at this point in time on um, in the national dialogue. Uh, I think you've invited me to step in a giant um, puddle of poo. I Laura. did totally <laughs> step in it, Grant. Uh, so here we go. So when my children were uh, four years old and they were developing readers, I did not hand them Moby Dick, um, but I did tell them the story of Moby Dick. Right. Um, I did not give them uh, The Three Musketeers uh, as written by Alexander um, Dumas. I, and I pardon the French if that's wrong, um, but, uh, but I did tell them the story of it. Right. In my middle school, when we have groups of struggling readers, what we do is we try to find a reader for them that is a high interest reader that is at their level, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we do to, to, and why do we do that? Because they can have success reading that and because they're interested in it. And so my take on authentic resources is if you can find authentic resources that are high interest and written at a level of comprehensibility at 90% or higher, then go for it. But if you're giving authentic resources to novice learners and you're saying identify the cognates, the time that you're spending doing that is uh, not as valuable as it could be, and it's not as efficient as it could be. Okay. Um, identifying cognates is great, but being able to read a full-page story top to bottom with language that is um, just a little bit beyond your level, 95% with a couple of words scattered in, um, is going to be a more efficient use of time for building their language, for, for acquiring language. Now, you can use authentic resources for different purposes, and I don't have anything against using them in the right ways and at the right times and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, it's simply a question of um, 
have the students acquired the language that they need to access that resource first. And I know that people in the authentic resource crowd are, 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 um, are fond of saying things like, well, modify the task, not the Exactly, text, yeah. Right? I think that was and, the text I had made was something along that route, and um, then I got the responders. <laughs> it's because you're famous, Laura. Everybody's oh, following. Oh, well, that's what I will talk up to that. <laughs> um, you know, and I, uh, I just think that I have such little time you know, <laughs> over the course of a school year, I have 150 hours, but a three-year-old or a four-year-old has already been exposed to 12 or 13 or 14,000 hours of language. And so I really need to be intentional about maximizing uh, the time that I have um, for language acquisition so that at the upper levels, they're able to access these texts more deeply. Right. Um, and so I really see what I do. Now, I focus on novices. Um, that's where my, like we said earlier, that's where my sweet spot is. But I don't have any um, delusions about what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm preparing my students to engage in sheltered content at the level three and level four spots. That's the goal, right? So we start with lots and lots of input, but it doesn't stay the same all you know, three or four years. Right, I'm preparing right. them to engage in, um, in real content that's been uh, modified for their levels at the upper level so that they can prepare for AP and the other things like that. Well, I don't think you did too bad in the Palapu there. I think you explained <laughs> your side pretty well. Um, the one thought, you know, just to kind of wrap up with you is there's another factor to teaching, and I think it's what makes teaching an art, and it's the teacher. So you might have someone who their personality fits better with a certain instructional practice, um, as long as it's sound, you know. And, like, I'm going to put it out there, and I've talked about this way too much on this podcast, so I hope it, no one thinks I am a grammar-focused teacher. I am not. But in those slight moments in class where I do want to indicate there's an E here, an ES there, an E here, just for a moment, I can make it fun. I can make grammar engaging. But just like you, you know, I taught a long time. I knew my kids, middle schoolers, for some reason, I connect with them, which doesn't say much for me. And it's, <laughs> um, you know what I mean? You can, that's just my personality. And a lot comes down to the teacher and what approach they can pull off. They can make art in their classroom with the, the students. And, you know, for some, CI might be that approach that really works for them. And for others, the teacher might not be able to pull it off. And, you know, you might want to disagree with that, but it's, you know, that's part of that art concept of teaching. And I just think it's amazing to have all these tools in your toolbox so you can be the best teacher you can be so your students can achieve the highest level they can in the quickest manner. But, um, very fascinating what you had to share and, and I can't thank you enough for um, giving us the metaphors the visuals the underpinnings to it it was very enlightening and I appreciate your time for that Laura do I get a chance to respond to what you just said well of course <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that and I'm going to be gentle but I am going to disagree with you I oh, think darn it. that <laughs> I think that I, I agree with you on some things I agree with you that um that every teacher has to find their own 
um, way right. to, to be the best that they can be. Uh, I will say that I've been teaching this way for 10 years and I'm still learning. Right. It's, um, I've barely scratched the surface of what's possible. And um, every year I go back and I review some strategies and techniques before I do them in class. And, um, and I'm always comparing you know, this year's crop of kids to last year's and wondering why aren't they doing this? You know. Right. Um, but in terms of CI as a tool in the toolbox, I just have to remind everybody that input is what fuels language acquisition. Correct. It's without it, there is no language acquisition. So it's clear to me that while there, while there may not be a best way, like the jury may still be out on that, there are better ways. And I would, I, if I were a leader in a district, I would be really um, wary of the person who says, I stand at the board and teach grammar because that's my personality. Um, I can't teach target language 90% because that doesn't fit my oh, personality. Oh, no, no, no. I agree with right? you 100% on that. I'm sorry if I explained it that way. I just meant, um, I guess, let me rephrase what I meant. And I agree with you, Grant, fully. It's uh -huh. Your personality is no excuse for bad teaching, period. I just know that, you know, I'm sure you've had student teachers and people you've mentored and when I would share strategies with them, like, um, let's say, you know, I'll use TPRS at times. And, you know, when we do it, sometimes it's so painful to watch a teacher <laughs> when they try something that that's just not them. It's making them be more extrovert or, in, you know, um, that's all I meant was I probably should explain that better. But you're sure, making a sure. good point. Good teaching has to happen. Uh, teaching that has is best practices, that has theory to support it, thus the science there, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. says this is the right thing, has to happen. There's no excuse for that. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. are correct in what you were and saying. I, I have met teachers, Laura, for whom TPRS probably just wasn't going to be their thing. Right. Um, I respect that. I do think, and I will, you know, I will, um, I will stand by that if anybody puts in three years of trying it, and really in, uh, tries to get better at it. There is a learning curve, but I think just about everybody can do it. And I've seen teachers who are uh, introverts uh -huh. pull it off really well. I've seen teachers who are high energy pull it off really well. I've seen teachers who are um, monotone pull it off. I mean, I think that um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the one of the conferences that I that I um, help with is the International Forum on Language Teaching. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about that is you get to see real teachers teaching uh, real kids. And it's amazing to see the breadth of um, personalities, uh, to go with that word, that you see in these demonstration teachers. And I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I was one of them uh, for the last three years. And so my style is a little bit more laid back, a little bit more calm, a little bit slower than, for example, uh, Alina Filipescu, who's out in California, who's like super high energy, and I, you know, and Annabelle Allen in Louisiana, who uh, must be must have like an intravenous caffeine um, situation. I don't know how yeah, she does that's it. me when when I was teaching. It was boom, 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 boom. <laughs> right, right, right. And I totally cannot do that anymore. Like maybe I could have when I was thirty five, but now that I'm in my forties, I can't pull that off. But I have found myself right in my CI strategies and so that's that's, that's important two, two things to remember is that it takes time there, there is a learning curve and eventually the second thing is that you will find yourself 
in these strategies and it'll become much more natural and much more you. Right, right. Like with TPR, I can almost have full conversations in TPR. <laughs> it's, it's like, and, you know, I always love to put my student teachers on the spot and not on the spot, but make them do, give them an activity where I'm expecting them to check comprehension at that, you know, when you're scaffolding at the lower level. Mm-hmm. And let's check some comprehension through the actions of students. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, so you need to model. And, and they get these big eyes like, what? And you're like, you're on stage. You need to, and they'll come back like, I tried all night. And I'm like, let me show you the actions. And to me, it's just so natural. I love it. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but you're right. After a while, they get good at it. And um, sure. so I really like, Grant, you had wonderful perspectives. I now, you know, you were fully deserving of being a finalist. And um, I always Aww. tell people I was second place so maybe you were second um, i don't think so laura (laughs) (laughs) i think the i think the ponytail put me in dead last (laughs) (laughs) well it has been absolute pleasure if somebody wants to contact you um to maybe have you come speak or do a training or just find out more um about what you do and your beliefs how best can they do that Sure. Thanks for that opportunity. Um, so I have a website. It's my first name, last name dot com. So it's Grant Boulanger, and it's G for those of you who don't speak French or read French, G R A N T B O U L A N G E R dot com. I have a blog there, and I, every once in a while I'll put some things up. I don't. It's not a super active blog, and it's more about like ideas than how to sometimes. But. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm a, a vision-driven uh, educator, and I just have this vision of a nation of 80% kids, uh, 80% of the adults having had experience, positive experiences and success in language classes to the point where we don't have to convince our legislators that it's a good idea to fund languages, you know. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm working toward. I call it the nation of advocates. And so if you ever see that hashtag out there, that's what, uh, that's what I'm creating to promote that idea that we need to get them from the beginning and not lose them. Love it. And Uh, so you are on Twitter. Um, I follow you. I love what you have to say and share. So I encourage our listeners to follow you as well. Thank you for that. I do I do sometimes get a little bit too political on Twitter, but I'm no longer a finalist for ACPL, so I figure that's all right. <laughs> well, thank you again, Grant, for your time, and I hope to see you soon at some conference, and um, we'll, we'll chat later. I'll give you a big hug when I do, Laura. Thanks thank both you. of you. Thanks to both of you for having me today. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. That was good. So... Again, I want to thank Grant. That was a wonderful discussion. Um, it's just amazing how across the United States you have different lenses with all of us having the same goals. We start with the same theoretical underpinnings, but you just have a lens that lets you approach things differently. And absolute respect to Grant and what he had to say. I think he's phenomenal. But um, for our polyglotting news, we just want to remind our listeners that the KWLA conference is quickly approaching. If you have not registered, please do so. We have many sessions. Um, One of the things I noticed this year with all the sessions listed, and Jean-Marie, I want to give kudos to you because I think your um, tenacity to have university involvement with KWLA is starting to really pay off. And when I look at the sessions, there's a lot 
large crowd coming from multiple universities in Kentucky presenting. I was flabbergasted by that. So I greatly enjoy being able to choose um, a session that might be led by a K-12 teacher, a college professor. So please uh, take advantage of the KWA conference. And this does conclude our podcast on comprehensible input. I wish to thank my co-host, Jean-Marie Rurier-Willoughby, our guest, Jillian Likens, and Grant Boulanger, and the University of Kentucky for providing the technology, the location, the patience to help us with our technology, and the broadcasting of our podcast. This is Laura Rocha-Youngworth for Language Talk KWLA saying au revoir and happy teaching. Bye.